Hi, this is Paul. Welcome to the podcast, Things I Didn't Learn in School, where my guests describe the big life lessons they've learned outside the classroom. I'm speaking today with Gao Xi Ching, who is really a remarkable person, so remarkable that I divided our conversation into two parts because he had so much interesting to say. Gao Xi Ching grew up really along with China, born a few years after the revolution, went through the Cultural Revolution, which he talks about, and then became one of the first lawyers who was initially trained in China, but then in the U.S., becoming the first Chinese citizen to pass the New York Bar. He then went on to set up the Chinese stock market, the Chinese Securities and Exchange Commission, and ran China's biggest wealth fund, China Investment Corporation, and he's taught law in both the United States and China. For those listeners less familiar with China, he references a few events that I just want to point out. The Cultural Revolution was an event that went from 1966 to 1976. The stated goal was eliminating traditional or capitalist elements of Chinese society and reimposing more strict adherence to Mao Zedong thought with rather calamitous consequences that he talks about. The Gang of Four was a group uh, led by Mao's wife of four people who were blamed for the Cultural Revolution. He also notes big character posters, which are basically handwritten wall-mounted posters that can raise all sorts of issues. And he makes reference to two French writers, Balzac, who lived from 1799 to 1850, and Stendhal, who wrote from 1783 to 1842. Enjoy. Hello. I'm Gao Xicheng. I'm teaching now, but uh, in my previous life, I've been doing various jobs. And uh, most of the jobs were not of my three choices, but uh, really given to me by the government, by the authority, by the, or whoever, because in my generation, we consider ourselves lucky if we got a job at all. But we once we had a job, it was a lifelong job. But however, life has been pushed me, life and right here and there, and uh, most of the time I just... Uh, readily accepted these things because there were no other choices. I grew up in Xi'an, China, a very old city in China, which was a the capital of China for about 1,200 years, much longer than Beijing, which we consider as the upstarter. And uh, from the time I could remember anything, I was uh, in a government-run kindergarten because both my parents worked for the government, Mm. And uh, life was uh, very different in those days because I, you know, I, I basically lived in the kindergarten and then in the primary school uh, most of my time. I could only get one day off to go home to see probably a nanny most of the time. Whoa, whoa slow down, slow down. You got to explain this. Supposedly, my mother told me I, I started out when I was 11 months old. <laughs> so, <Wow>. right. <laughs> I was sent into. You know, in a government-run kindergarten, there's nursery places as well, just for government employees who didn't have a, a time to run their thing. And those days, they call it, this is in early, I was born in 1953. In the early days of the revolution, they call it military communism, which basically means that, uh, you know, everyone you know, was treated equally, but in a military fashion. So... Everything was rationed. This is literally four years after the revolution. Right. 
And so in those days, there were there were no salaries for the first few years. There were no salaries. There were our family with my parents, my sister, two years older, brother, two years younger. With the five members of family, we were given pounds of uh, grain. We're even given a goat, which we could milk <laughs> every day, and uh, we're given various things. That was it. Until about a few years after I was born, then they changed the whole thing. They, you know, which was criticized later during the Cultural Revolution because we were learning from the Russians, and uh, the Russians uh, started having this what uh, Mao later called the bourgeois way of the wage system. So. People started to get their wages according to their hierarchy in the government. But at the time I was in the kindergarten, there was, you know, I just stayed there most of the time because uh, it was uh, sort of like boarding schools. But, you know, one day in every two weeks, we could all go home. Even in the whole primary school up until 1966, when the Cultural Revolution started, in a primary school, I was still going home every, we call it a big week. So one day in every two weeks. And for a small week of staying at home, uh, stayed in the, in the school. That was uh, a time, uh, which I, you know, look back, it was uh, not too bad for a kid because, you know, you just, you, you co-mingle with other kids. You, you don't worry about anything else. You know, I don't even have to deal with my brother <laughs> with, you know, with whom, you know, we fought a lot, you know, later. But in those days, we were all in different, you know, schools, different grades and didn't really have to worry about that much. But, um, one of the most uh, telling things, most memorable things was really the time when I went into primary school in 1960. China, that was immediately after the Great Leap Forward, the commune, and all those things. And the economy became very, very bad. So the first thing I remembered was that our food was rationed very much, and we weren't given enough food. Uh, And the three meals in schools were really scanty. And uh, I was talking to our teacher, and she said, well, you guys are so lucky because the uh, Chairman Ma and the party and the government consider you guys as important to the revolution for younger people. So your your ration was uh, not cut at all. And uh, our ration, you know, the teacher said, uh, were all cut by anywhere from 10 to 30 percent. Mm. So they were, you know, really suffering. And I remember, you because know, we live in this large room, so it was, you know, I think there were about 20 kids, 20 boys living in the same room. But sometimes in the middle of the, uh, of the night, you know, one time I was wakened by this, by this little noise. And then I saw our nanny. This is a school nanny. You know, you have a teacher, you have a teacher. We call it, you know, nanny teacher who was supposed to take care of us. We were only you know, seven, eight year old, but during certain festivals, that was the mid-autumn day, were given some some cakes. Each one was given a piece. Some kids ate it like me. Some kids didn't, and then they saved it at their bed. And then this nanny stealthily came up and just got a piece from each kid and that because apparently she was hungry. Mm. And I didn't say anything, 
But later, that was, that really stuck in my head because I, I just, you know, when you were a kid, you, you respect those, uh, old ladies. They were nice to us. But then you, then I said, Oh my God, she's a thief. So that was, uh, you know, something that really stuck in my head. That sort of thing lasted for three years up until the 19, 1962, 63, 64, then things became better. But even in those days, you know, food was, was still rationed. And we still had those uh, scanty supply of uh, meat or you know, cooking oil, eggs. These things were all fancy, you know, luxury things. You know, our school was, you know, as a boarding school was totally supplied by the government. So we later I talked to my friends in from other schools they they said they were their life was even worse just on the the separation from the parents you know a lot of at least psychologists in the in the west would say this is so primary to a child's development a very warm relationship with a primary caregiver how do you think that that whole episode impacted not only you, but all of the people around you in terms of being separated that way. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. I think this had a different impact on different people. For me, it didn't affect me negatively that much as some of my friends. That's why very often I'm accused by, you know, either sometimes my wife or by other, you know, friends who would say, you are so insensitive because you, you know, you, you just, you went through all these hard things. So your nerve was forged into a sort of much thicker one. So it didn't have, you didn't have to worry. But when I, look back, when I think about it, there were various problems. Probably I just grew up as a sort of a, uh, insensitive stick nerves kid. I got a lot more sensitive only much later. Really, I think very much of it was, I gradually realized that I, I started to get back after I got to the U.S. when I saw things and saw people uh, who you know complained about these things. At first, my first impression, my first reaction was that Gosh, you guys live in such a privileged life, such a wonderful life. So you never really have to worry about your food, your, your livelihood, your, you know, worms. So you worry about the little things like sensitivity, like, you know, uh, how people treat you. I said, who the hell carry, you know, worry about those things? Right. You know, when I grew up, I was worried only about food. Once you get to into teenager, teenager stage, now we, you know, the kids started, especially boys, started becoming a lot more rebellious. That was a time when we were, we started uh, uh, revolting from either the 
you know, the teachers or the nannies. But my impression is that most of the time we um, we didn't really we didn't have give the nannies a, a hard time. They were much older than our teachers, mm. and we were you know in the tradition that we say we had to respect them at least even not willingly we were we had to be respectful to them. But to the teachers, gradually we started having problems, and all of a sudden there was a cultural revolution. So that's what happened in many schools when, when the school kids started beating up the teachers and do that, and we didn't do much of that because our, you know, we were because we were in the boarding school, we were so much closer to the teachers, so we weren't respectful enough to call them teachers anymore. But we we, we didn't really do anything to their person, to their bodies. But uh, I remember when I went back to the school uh, during the Cultural Revolution, when, you know, most teachers were gone, kids were gone. I just went in there, with a few of us, we started smashing up things. That we used those, uh, you know, broken bricks and started just smashing the blackboard, uh, the windows and stuff, because we just thought, well, this is the place which brought us so many, so many bad memories of having to study. And, Rather than like today, you know, the Cold Revolution, where no schools, you can do whatever you want. So that was a, you know, a short period of time when all these teenagers went out and really did a lot of damage to the society. And today, if you look back, you, you know, people call it da da chiang, which means, you know, smashing up and uh, loot and rob people of things. Those were done mostly by teenagers. There were, Fights and all things by older students in uh, universities, but really the most serious ones. It was mostly by junior high school kids, and uh, senior high school kids did some, but not as much. To anybody of your generation, it's so fundamental. It seems to me doesn't even need any explanation. But if you're explaining this to somebody who hasn't been to China, how do you explain what the Cultural Revolution was? There's the official line, and there are a hundred different interpretations by historians, by different people. But let me tell you the official line first. The Communist Party of China eventually had a document which says that the Cultural Revolution was a disaster for the country. It was a the bad thing that happened. Started out by Mao, uh, who probably had a good intention to try to. Uh, reform people of their human nature and thought that people, you know, it was sort of a utopian theory that people, since people were selfish and all that, that was not because they were inherently selfish, but because of former bad education and uh, bad ideology, these things. So Mao wanted to change this whole thing, making everyone a totally selfish, altruistic person Everyone, you know, thinking forward, everyone being a good person to other people. This is, uh, you know, the official line. But then they said, uh, this is wrong. And Mao, uh, because of the Cold Revolution, things were badly affected. The economy and people's lives and many people died. And there are different counts, but the government would never give a full account of how many people died. But by a few major leaders of the of the Communist Party, in their personal interviews, it's, it ranges anywhere from 10 million to 
30 million people who died or uh, and up to 100 million people who got persecuted during the Cultural Revolution. You know, at the time when the Cultural Revolution started, China only had 650 million people. So it was a large proportion of the people. Very often people ask me, how come every time I see any Chinese, everyone says they got either themselves or their families got persecuted. Now, who are the persecutors? So I, I told them, I said, look, that was like a religious war. You know, they have all these different factions. One time these people got uphand and turned them all like these people. So they persecuted other people. And then they turned around in another few months and those other people came up supported by Mao or perceived by, you know, Gang of Four as uh, good people and then they persecute other people. So the Cultural Revolution lasted for about 10 years. And uh, during that time, many people got persecuted for various reasons. It's basically a chaotic period of time. And people lost their common sense, lost their rationality. But everyone now has different uh, views. Today, the, from time to time, you see there's this large group on the internet, which people call them the neo-leftist. And they believe that the Cultural Revolution was a good thing for China. Still, they say, well, just look at all the bureaucrats. Look at the rich people now being so insensitive towards the common people. The Cultural Revolution was called the proletarian Cultural Revolution. So we, the proletarian, which, you know, the neo-leftists claim that they support all the poor people, the working class, the poor farmers. And they say they were hoping that the Cultural Revolution will come back and uh, we should just smash all the government bureaucratic institutions and allow the poor people, like the workers and peasants, to become the leaders of the country. Mm. But this is not a, a mainstream thinking. But uh, there are all these different views today. Of course, the government doesn't condone extreme statements. However, still, you can see from time to time, I see different views. People who criticize the Cultural Revolution, people who support the Cultural Revolution, but this very term cultural revolution now is almost a, a forbidden term now on the official line. The official propaganda would not allow people to discuss about it. However, you know, in, in the information age, you generally can't stop people from doing it. Were you, as part of this, sent away from this boarding school to like a labor camp the way many, many people were? For the first few months of the cultural revolution, the kids were all supported by the uh, by Mao and by his widow, Commander Jiangqing, as uh, revolutionary rebels. So kids were all allowed to travel freely. Uh, in those days, there were not very much of an airplane travel, but you know China is large, so we could hop on any train, any boat, any truck, any bus to go anywhere in the country without paying. Yeah, we would go to all these different places. The whole country was such a chaos. Trains were all, you know, hugely delayed. I was 13 years old and my brother was 11. My sister was 15, but she wouldn't take me with there because she thought I was, we were a burden. So I just took my brother with a few other kids. We went to thousands of miles in China, went to all these places just to travel, just to see things lived in you know, various places, which they call revolutionary rebels uh, reception stations. You could just eat there. You know, it's not good food, but you, could, you had enough to eat. 
and I went to Changsha, Wuhan, and on our way to Guangzhou, we were stopped because we we're too little. So we're supposedly, if you're not a high school, a junior high school kid, you're not allowed to travel because we were all primary school kids. But we just, you know, we just did everything. And, and I went to Beijing twice and then went to, for me, it was a, a wonderful time just uh, sightseeing, seeing all these things. But then, then of course, you can't, the country cannot be run that way for too long. There was major chaos. Everything stopped. Production stopped. So, you know, the economy really uh, started having problems. So Zhou Enlai said, well, now it gets too cold. That was in December of 1966. You know, the, the, the big travel already went on for quite a few months. He said, let's stop everything now. And next spring, when it's warm, you can start the travel again. So then we sort of stopped. But I continued to do that up until uh, February, May of 1967. But then uh, something happened to my family that I I had to go back to my hometown, Xi'an. That was, I remember very clearly. So I was in the middle of Tiananmen Square when I was looking at uh, the Chairman Mao's portrait hanging on, on the, uh, the gate of heavenly peace, admiring the revolution and everything. And then I ran into this kid from my neighborhood. He came and he said, Oh, <clears throat> you're still here. Why don't you go back to here? I said, Why? He said, Oh, okay. Your father is, a, we, we call it Dadao. It's called a smash down. Why? Because my father works for the government. And he said, Well, there are all these uh, big criticizing character, uh, you know, we have called it big character posters. It's pasted everywhere, you know, in a neighborhood, in a city, and said, oh, your father is a bad person. You know, those days, every day you hear someone new uh, gotten smashed down. And I was really surprised, because I always thought my father was a good person. He always works for the government, too, you know, he, all his life. He joined the Red Army when he was 11 years old. He lost his parents both parents by the t- uh, age of nine. Then he joined the army just to, to have food, uh, not for the revolution, but, but just to live on. So he, he grew up in the army and he had all his schoolings were in a revolution. Uh, so I always thought he was the most revolutionary person I know. And all of a sudden he became a bad person. I didn't know what happened. So I immediately lost all my interest in going on. I told my friends, well, there were a few friends there so I said, okay, um, forget it, I'm going home. That was uh, May 13th of 1967. And then I, I took a train, went back, and then sure enough, you know, he was taken. My brother told me that uh, he was uh, being beaten up in public and all these. And there were many stories about those bad times. But then I could still see him from time to time. You know, after each criticism meeting, he could still go home for a short period of time. And one day he was accused of, he got, uh, he had a traffic accident. You can see he was riding a bicycle, then a truck almost ran him over. And then those, those people said, uh, he wanted to commit suicide. And I went home, you know, he got injured and then he told me, he said, look, I will never commit suicide. Remember this. If I got killed, it's not myself. It's someone else. And then very soon after that, after he got recovered from his leg injury, he was taken in. Uh, ever since then, he was, uh, you know, always in captive for about five years. He was moved from one place to another. 
uh, all these different uh, jails, either uh, run by the military or run by the workers. And uh, then a year after, in 1968, my mother was uh, given the order to, you know, by that time they said, well, all the government agencies were uh, they were not allowed to exist anymore. So they say all these uh, cadres, all the government employees were supposed to go to the countryside. And my mother was given a place in the uh, northern part of Shanxi, near in the Mongolia. And she was supposed to take all the kids with her. At that time, we, I, I had a younger sister, 10 years younger, who was only four or five years old. And then my older uh, sister volunteered, so to speak. That's what I mean by that. They said all the school kids were supposed to go to the countryside, go on the farms. She went to, went to a village about 200 kilometers from Xi'an. <clears throat> and then the rest of us, myself, my younger brother, and my younger sister were supposed to go to Shanbei, to the northern part of Shanxi, with my, my mother. She went to the uh, military committee and back to those uh, military officers uh, to allow me to stay because she said, well, he, he's in school. At that time, in 1968, the school already reopened. And uh, supposedly I went to the junior high school, but they were really not very much of studying, mostly studying Chamber Maslow Red Book for culture. And then most of the time we spent was either having criticism meetings of the teachers or digging tunnels because, you know, they said, well, either Americans or the Russians are going to come in to invade us. So we, we spent many hours digging tunnels underground or uh, we were learning those, what we call loyalty dances. And it's a stupid, ugly dances, which when you sing a song praising Chairman Mao and those things. So we're doing most of those things rather than studying at all. But that was a time when I, you know, finally realized, because then, right, let me finish this part. Then my mother backed the military, and finally they agreed. They said, okay, uh, they allowed me to stay in Xi'an for another year. And uh, my mother went went away with my uh, younger brother and sister. And then during that year, I started uh, reckoning with the, the, the few books, the books left at home, because most of the books were, you know, they, you search the books. Our family was ransacked by the rebels. And for everything, they, they are suspicious of uh, against the revolution. They just they took them away and burned them. So and my mother voluntarily burned a lot of books because she said, well, let's burn these books because otherwise if the rebels find them, then we're going to be in big trouble. So we, we burned so many uh, books and uh, pictures. You know, my father had a lot of photos, but during his time, he, he traveled a lot, had a lot of uh, you know, things. So my mother said, well, let's burn these because they, they would, they typically they would display these photos and say, see, this is the, how this person admires our lifestyle. Mm. So we burn all those things, burn so many of those things that our bathroom, uh, this, uh, this uh, toilet bowl got uh, cracked because of the, uh, the fire. Then I started reading books. With the few books left, I, I read them. I started going out, boring books. If not that, then there were libraries in, uh, in schools, in my school, in, in some other schools, which were all closed down. So I found a way to, you know, with a few other friends who would uh, sneak into the schools at night 
and tried to open the windows or with you know, various ways to pry the, the windows or the doors open, stole books. And one time we even we dug a tunnel in the school. And, uh, you know, those days the, the base of the houses were not cement. So you could dig a tunnel and sneak into the school or small and then just got all the books we could, got them out and read. So that was the time when I read a lot of books. Uh, instead of just going out, you know, uh, and, and the other thing, most of two things. Another thing was just going around and trying to get food. I stole food from the military camps, from uh, government-run shops and all that. So we, in Chinese, we have this term, adage, which is called 道义有道, which, which meant even the bandits have their rationalities. So I would say, well, as a thief, I have my uh, reason, uh, my rationality, my principle. Yeah, it should be the bandits will have principles. My principle is that I will never steal from private citizens. And we still call those uh, who steal from private citizens thieves, but we consider ourselves as good people because uh, Lu Xun once said, which means those who steal books are not thieves. So I said, well, I'm not a thief because I only steal books, but I actually stole uh, food, potatoes, and old molded the mantle from the military camps as well, just to feed myself. Uh, so that was uh, that part of the life. So then you get through the Cultural Revolution, then to college in Beijing? We were given a choice. We said, okay, you, you either go to the countryside or uh, that was a railway construction site. And you could go to build the railway. And uh, so that, that's why I said I was not, you know, people said you were sent to those I places. See. I wasn't forced or we given a choice. So they say, if you, if you want to go build a railway, and of course, everyone wanted to go. Why? Because they, they say, well, you can get a salary. You can get your three meals guaranteed. You know, we already knew the life in the countryside because my sister was there. All, you know, we had you know, all these bigger kids who went to the countryside. I visited them quite often. Their, their life was miserable because they didn't have enough food, didn't have any vegetables, no meat, and uh, life was uh, difficult on the farms. So when I hear that there was a chance to go to the railway, people were happy, but I wasn't really happy because they call it Sanxianjianshu. It's called the third line construction. That was a term made up by Chairman Mao who said, well, that was the third line to, of defense for to, uh, you know, to fight against the Russians or the Americans. So those were regarded as an important government project. So only people with good class standing could go. Mm. I didn't have a good class standing because my father was in jail. Mm. So everyone wrote their application to go. I didn't. I was the only one in my class of 60 people. I didn't write. But a teacher came up to me and said, hey, why didn't you write your application? I said, what's so good about the application? I won't get a chance to go anyway. He said, but it shows your attitude. You have to write it. Everyone needs to write it because if you don't want to do the revolution. I said, oh, all right. So, you know, instead of writing a long application, everyone, like everyone else, some people even uh, wrote their, their applications with blood. They cut their, their hand, you know, pro their fingers and they wrote to uh, letters to show their determination to go. I took out a piece of paper, wrote only one line. I said, I, uh, Gao Xiqing, uh, would like to go to the uh, third line construction. 
That was it. I just took on the end and I said, hey, okay, that's my Russian attitude. But of course, sure enough, I, you know, I was given the chance. Everyone got a chance. So all the boys, only a small number of girls uh, had a chance, but almost all the boys were given that chance to go. Uh, there were all together 25,000 kids were sent to, to that uh, construction uh, place. Of that 25,000, only about 2,000 were girls. And the rest of us were all boys. So we, we were got on, on these trucks, uh, which took uh, two or three days to get to the place. Today, now, we, with the high-speed uh, expressway, I went back there a few months ago to celebrate our 50th anniversary. This is 50 years ago, in 1970, in August. Amazing. So in this uh, August of this year, we went there. It took us only three hours to get there. By that time, three days or two or three days to climb over this whole mountain and finally got there. Very, very hard labor for three years and with uh, rationed food and uh, very heavy labor and uh, dangerous um, work activities. Uh, many people died and I was uh, injured. I still have a certificate of third degree disabled soldier uh, because I had a, my head was smashed by a rock flying and then uh, had a concussion uh, on the head. So th- those three years were, you know, hard labor, but uh, life was actually better than when I was back in Xi'an because I didn't have to worry about every meal anymore because they were, you know, we all stayed together, 168 kids in one company and uh, doing hard labor, but we had a cooking team who had the kitchen. And so we got food, three meals, not enough, and they're hungry every day, still had three meals. So my experience is a little different from most of the kids, because many kids, they're, you know, they really felt miserable because they, they miss their family so much. Every time, uh, just a few weeks after we got there, it was the mid-autumn day. In China, it was a very important uh, festival because uh, people, you know, all get together. It's like Thanksgiving in the U.S., and people get together. And those kids started crying. And I didn't understand. I said, why are you crying? They said, well, I miss my, my mother. I miss my, my father. I was the only one not crying. Why? Because I, I didn't have my mother or my father for a few years. And I was alone, either with my brother alone or just my, totally myself alone for quite a few years. So it never was a big issue for me. Mm. You know, that was the time when I uh, developed a further habit to Read and we we uh, one of our people went back to Xi'an for a uh, hepatitis uh, treatment and he came back smuggled back two boxes of books the whole collection of Balzacs we call it uh, human tragedies and human comedies mm-hmm. we got Sandow uh, we got uh, you know uh, Henry James and uh, many of uh, you know translated the books. So I read all those books in those days. You know, after 10, 12, 14 hours of working each day after that, and then went home, had a lamp, which we used for, was, uh, they used the diesels. It was very dirty diesel, which were uh, used to wash uh, uh, parts. And then we can use that, put it in a bottle, and have those as a light at night. So each night, and um, after a few hours of reading, my whole face was uh, covered by 
it was totally darkened by those things. So those were what many of the knights who did that. And then, then uh, the railway was finished. I was given a job to a military factory in Xi'an. And I was lucky because I was among one of the 30, 40% of kids who were, were allowed to go back to Xi'an. And most other kids couldn't get a chance to go back to Xi'an as promised by the government early on. But they, they said, well, Xi'an couldn't take so many kids. So they were given a job in other places, in the mountains, on the railroad, or in some place far away from home. I was given that chance because I was one with the injured. So they, they said, later I found out that the fatality rate of the, uh, the station, the, uh, those uh, construction was almost 1%. And then the injury rate was 4%. I was among the 4%. So for each supposedly good job, like the military factory, for every 25 people, they have to take one injured person. So I was one of the, uh, the uh, injuries to be given to that factory. So I was there for about a year and a half and working on, on mechanics, uh, those things. Uh, we're making machine guns. You know, that was during a time when we're still sort of in the Cultural Revolution, but uh, Chairman Mao said, okay, we still need colleges. At least we need uh, colleges of uh, science and technology. So they opened colleges without exams because they didn't want to uh, have what they call the Bura way of taking kids. They say our uh, standard of taking uh, college uh, grads are revolutionary, not uh, by you know meritocracy. So there were no exams. If you are regarded as a model worker, uh, you may get a chance to go. I was one of the model workers. I worked very, very hard and worked overtime all the time and all that. So that year, when we each, our factory had about uh, almost 6,000 workers. So we were given three slots to go into the, uh, uh, in the colleges. And those three slots were just at random. We are at that, that year, three slots. One of them was, uh, the casting mechanics in Xi'an Jiao University. One was uh, learning herbal medicine in Shenyang Medical School, and one was learning foreign trade and English in Beijing Institute of Foreign Trade, which became my alma mater later. Now it's called the University of International Business and Economics. So I was chosen by the workers based on my class standing. By that time, my father already got out of jail and given the, his job back without much explanation and said, okay, uh, fine, you just go back to work. So I no longer had that problem. And uh, then it gave me this chance to go to Beijing. That's how I went to college. For three and a half years, we studied uh, trade, economics, English language, and all that. And then there was the end of the Cold Revolution. 